An author by the name of Nicole Johnson wrote an article that I think uh, many of us can relate to. Uh, the article is entitled, I Am Invisible, and uh, I just want to read a portion of it. It all began to make sense. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids will walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. And inside I'm thinking, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see that I'm on the phone or cooking or sweeping or even standing on my head in the corner of the room. No one can see me at all because I'm invisible. Some days I'm only a pair of hands, nothing more. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? Some days I'm not a pair of hands. I'm not even a human being. I'm a clock to ask, what time is it? I'm a satellite guide to answer, what number is the Disney Channel? I'm a car to order, right around 5.30, please. I was certain that these were hands that once held books, eyes that once studied history, and a mind that graduated. But now they had all disappeared into the peanut butter, never to be seen again. I am, and then she concludes, I am going, going, gone. Anyone ever feel invisible? It's not just mothers that feel invisible sometimes, right? Uh, we can feel invisible in our careers, invisible in our marriages, invisible in our singleness, invisible at school. Sometimes we even feel invisible to God. And... Invis feeling invisible is painful. The problem is it can also be dangerous. We become desperate when we feel invisible because we have this need to be seen by someone. And so when we feel invisible, it can drive us to do things that are unhelpful, dangerous even. Today's message looks at someone who felt completely invisible and because of that was driven to do some things that were going to be dangerous. And what God's word shows us is that when we feel invisible to everyone around us, there is a God who really does see us. And having seen the God who sees us, we can find strength not to do those dumb things, not to take those faithless shortcuts, but instead trust him, walk with him, wait on him. And even if it involves some uh, scenic long routes, uh, we can follow him to a place of blessing. Uh, we have been looking through this series, Walk into God's Blessings, uh, through the life of Abraham. Uh, and we have come to Genesis chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, encourage you to uh, follow along with me. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 all the way down to 16. Uh, but uh, I, if you'd follow along, Genesis 16, verses 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sar Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you, as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and, you sh and, and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of God. Now, before we see what this passage teaches, we need to figure out what we're going to do with it. Because there are plenty of people who will dismiss a chapter like this because of some of the details there. In fact, there are plenty of people who will read a chapter like this and they will dismiss the Bible because of what it talks about. Specifically, people will say, what can I, what can I learn from a, a woman who kept slaves? Or they'll say, what on earth am I to do with, a, uh, how, how could I follow a, a, a man like Abram who was a polygamist? What do you do with that? Part of the problem is with the expectations people bring to the Bible. Many people assume that the Bible is a little bit like Aesop's fables. It is a collection of moral stories about heroes of, of goodness and morality for us to imitate. Come to a chapter like today and you think, I don't think he's a hero. I don't think she's a... No, there are no heroes in today's story. And it's a reminder to us that actually that's not what the Bible was uh, intended to communicate to us. It is not a collection of good moral heroes for us to imitate. Instead, it is a collection of stories about sinful people who are rescued by a good God. Abraham, Sarah, Hagar are all sinners. And... So are you. So am I. 
The good news of the scriptures is they're not that there are good people for us to imitate, but there is a good God who rescues bad people. And that's, that's, that's the message of this chapter of the Bible and of the entire scriptures. And so that, that affects and, and changes how we look at a passage like ours today. So let's get into the text itself. The first thing it teaches is that when we feel invisible, we're tempted to faithless shortcuts that lead to dead ends. When we cut God out of the solution, we think that we're, we've got a better plan. We've got a shorter plan, a quicker plan, an easier plan. And the warning of this chapter is that those plans, when they have disregarded and disobeyed God in, in the hopes of a shorter way, a quicker way, they, those uh, shortcuts don't end well for us. It's a warning to us. Now, when we see Sarah in verse 1, she's now 75 years old, and she has been unable to do the one thing that her culture expected of her, to provide an heir for her family. When she first met God, she was 65 years old. And at that time, she had gone many, many decades uh, and had been unable to have a child. And she had lost hope of that. But when God appeared to her, she thought, maybe, maybe God can do this. She, she had uh, an innocent hope, but also probably some incredulousness, some a sense of, I don't know how that could even be possible. But there was something to... Uh, uh, to the promise. It, it, she has a sense of expectation in God, but just to wonder, how could God ever do that? That's 10 years in the past now, though. And God's what promises that gave her hope at the time, now are just making her feel even more miserable. Because it feels like she had closed the door on something only to get hope about it again and then to be brought down with a sense of disappointment that feels harder than where she started. And so those feelings are going through her mind. God's words to her seem cruel. And so in verse 2 she says, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's not just, no, this, this didn't work out. God has done this. God has hurt me. God has prevented me. She feels invisible to God. And waiting for God can do that. Waiting for God can make, make us feel invisible to him. We start to ask questions. Why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he listen? Why doesn't, why doesn't he act? Why doesn't he answer my prayers when I call out to him? Where, where is God? What is he doing? But feeling invisible is also dangerous. We become desperate and we make decisions that uh, cut God out of the, uh, the equation and they can cause real problems for us. And that's what happens with Sarah. In verse 2, she offers her servant, Ab her servant to Abram with the hopes of having a child through her. It sounds crazy to us. It sounds like, boy, that's got to be the worst plan ever. But if you had been living at this time, you would have, you would have said, well, of course that's what you're going to do. 
This was common sense. This was the natural way. This was just what people did. And so it didn't so much matter to her that this was not God's plan. It was, didn't so much matter that this was uh, against God's, uh, God's will for their lives. It would just, this is just a normal way of doing things. And she took things into her own hands and took a shortcut. Even at that point, even as it's describing it though, the language that it's using is, is communicating to us that this is a terrible idea. Because the, the way that what she's, what she's doing is described in such a way that it sounds almost exactly like what Eve did in the garden. I want you to see this. We know that Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And here it says in verse 3 that Sarah took Hagar and gave her to her husband, Abraham. When you're tired of waiting for God, the temptation is to take things into your own hands. And the warning is that that is sin. It it doesn't end well. It didn't end well in the garden, and it didn't end well for Sarah. Romans 14.23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Do you, do, you, do you think of sin like that? We, we often think of sin as like these really bad things or something that hurts someone or just is, is, is unfaithful in some way. Or, but here it's saying, anytime you, you make a decision or you do something that is not born out of a deep-rooted trust in God, you're just trusting yourself, trusting your own judgment, trusting that you've got a plan and that you can make this work. When you do that, the Bible says, that's sin. Cutting God out of the picture. Going your own way. Choosing the shortcut. Augustine wrote in his confession, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. If you want a child and you take your servant and you give her to your husband so that you can get a child, it's sin. You cut God out of the picture, you disregard and disobey his commands and think, I've got a better plan. I I think that I've got a shortcut here. That is what the Bible says is sin. And it's a warning that it'll end badly. And the passage warns us about that. In in verse 4, we see, first of all, the results of Sarah's scheme. Her plan initially works. Hagar gets pregnant. It seems like she was right after all. Just follow the common wisdom of the day, forget God, and it'll be fine. She gets pregnant. But you notice what happened right after that, right? Right after she gets pregnant, it says that Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar is proud now. She's flaunting her pregnancy in front of Sarah, and Sarah feels even more miserable, even more invisible. When we cut God out of the solution and take a shortcut, it doesn't end well. It's a warning of the passage. Angry and frustrated, Sarah says to Abraham in verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you. 
That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Like, you know what's happened, right? Sarah's got a plan. She tells Abraham what to do. Abraham does what Sarah tells him to do. And things go badly. And now somehow it's Abraham's fault. Like, I'm, I can tell from the expression on some of you couple's faces, this is kind of a little too close to home, right? And, and it may be going one way, it may be going the other way, but uh, the, the point we're supposed to see here is not only, oh boy, I think that happens in my marriage too, the point we're, trying to, we're, we're supposed to see is, boy, that looks like an awful lot like what happened in the garden, doesn't it? God comes to, Abra- God comes to Adam and says, you know, confronts him and he said, boy, is this, uh, is this woman that you put here with me? And, and, and Eve says, oh, it's, it's a serpent. Like, uh. And it's that failure to take sin seriously, to take ownership, to say, yeah, it was me. I, I, I'm, I made this mess. I cut you out of the picture and I should have known that this was going to happen. And instead, we want to do this and do this. Doesn't end well. Things go from bad to worse, though. Uh, In verse 6, in response to his wife, uh, Abraham basically throws up his hands and says, do whatever you want. And and it's an ironic thing for him to say because do whatever you want, that passive response was what, ended them up in this situation in the first place. Abraham could have said right from square one, not do whatever you want. He could have said, maybe we need to back up a little bit. God's made some pretty significant promises to us. Maybe we should trust him. I realize that 10 years is a long time, but maybe the Lord is bigger than waiting for 10 years. Maybe he's worth waiting for. But step one, Abraham said, do whatever you want. If you've got a plan, I'll go for it. And then when things go badly, as he should have known that they would, he throws up his hands again and says, do whatever you want. And, and, and he would probably say, I'm being the cooperative husband. Who could fault me? No, you're being the passive husband that should have been a voice of reason. You should have been calling your family to, to trust in God and to remind them of his promises. He throws up his hands and says, not my fault. Do it or do it or do it or what you want. In verse six, things go bad from bad to worse. Sarah decides to punish Hagar, put her in her place. I'll get get her back. I've now got the, the permission and authority of my husband to make this life this woman's life miserable. And Hagar takes a walk. That wasn't really what she expected. Now Sarah is feeling humiliated and her only hope for a child seems to be on a road back to Egypt. She's got nothing to show for. Her plan has completely fallen apart. And again, the warning of the passage is faithless shortcuts lead to dead ends. It doesn't end well. It seems like this will be simpler. It seems like this is a natural way to do it. It feels like we've got a better idea and it doesn't end well for us. What happens next shows us that we're not so invisible after all, though. 
God sees us and he calls us to follow him, to, to get off the, the shortcut, to follow him on a scenic route to God's blessings. I, I, I say scenic route because we could call this the long way. We could call it the, 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 the long path around. But if it's God who's leading us on it, it's with the conviction that this is the path that actually gets us to where we want to go. It may be longer, it may be bumpier, but it's ultimately a path of blessing. It's a scenic route. Uh, we pick up the scene in verse 7 and we see the angel of the Lord approaching Hagar. She's in the wilderness by a spring of water. She's on the road back to Egypt. And in verse 8, he addresses her, Hagar, servant of Sarai. In saying that, we recognize he knows who she is, he knows her title, and he knows where she's come from. She's the servant of Sarai. So then we're surprised to hear his next question. He asks her where she's come from and where she's going. Clearly, he knows everything about her. He knows exactly where she's come from. And the point of his question is, what on earth are you doing on this road heading to Egypt? You're the mistress of Sarai. Why are you not with Sarai? The mistress of Sarai is supposed to be with Sarai. What's going on here? And, and what he's trying to do is to help her to see she is on a shortcut and she is on a path that is going in the opposite direction for God's will for her life. The recognition is that uh, the path that she's on will not be a happy path. As a fugitive slave, as someone who is supposed to be with Sarai, if she turns her back on her, runs to Egypt, she will be constantly looking over her shoulder. She will be vulnerable. She will be a person of no status, uh, a person who will be uh, vulnerable to, to abuse, vulnerable to the people that would find her both on this path as well as back in Egypt. It's a dangerous path. We see here that, that Hagar's taken her own shortcut. She has essentially felt invisible to the people in her life. Invisible to God, decides to take a shortcut. Better to run than to bear down and deal with what's happening in front of her. The angel of the Lord calls her to turn. Calls her to turn from the shortcut that she's on and to go back. I think when she hears his words in verse 9, they just would give her this pit in her stomach. Anything but that. In verse 9, he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Return? To her? Like, have you, have you met this woman? Do you know how miserable she has made my life? Do you know what it's going to be like to go back to her? Do you know how painful that will be? The call is still to return. God's, God's paths are never easy. This is not an advertisement for a, a smooth and a simple path. Waiting is hard. And shortcuts seem so much more attractive. But the scenic route with God brings us to that place of blessing. Trusting God is like that. 
Following him inevitably involves some long way around, some scenic routes. It involves some bumps on the path as we follow him. But those scenic routes are good even when they're hard. And they end well. Unlike the shortcuts that we choose for ourselves when we cut them out of the picture, those paths end well. In verse 10, the angel doesn't just send her back, but he sends her back with a promise of blessing. He promises to multiply her offspring so that they can't be counted. He promises her a son and he gives her hope. The problem is, there's still no word that Sarah's changed. There's still no word that anything's going to be different. No indication that the, the, the pain and the difficulty that she ran away from will go away. But now she understands that she is going back with hope. She's going back with a reassurance of the blessing of God. She goes back having met someone who sees her and invites her to follow him. Follow him into a path of blessing. And we need to pause there and, and, and just examine our lives and, and ask, are you on a shortcut? Are you, are, are you in a place right now where you would say, you know, as I think about that decision, as I think about where I am, as I think about what I'm contemplating, it, it just doesn't feel that bad. It feels natural. It feels, it feels like what everybody does, but I feel like I've cut God out of this. I feel like it didn't start with God. It didn't reference God. And when I'm honest with myself, I recognize it, it ignores some, some things that he has told me in his word. And I recognize that that's not going to end well for me. And I'm called to return. I'm called to follow him even when the path seems difficult. He calls me to trust him when, when it's hard with the recognition that he knows what he's doing. The recognition that he's good and he can be trusted. He calls us to follow him on the scenic route to blessing. Now, maybe you're struggling to understand how you could do that. Maybe you see yourself on that path and you know that turning around and going in the other direction is going to be a, about as hard as it was for Hagar. And you're thinking, how could she do that? How could she, how could she walk back into that situation? Where do you find the strength to do that? The people in the circumstances hadn't changed. The thing was, now she had changed. And she had met a God who changed things for her, changed things about her. She had felt invisible, but now she had met the one who sees her, the one who understands and sees and is aware of things when she felt completely invisible, when she felt undone by her circumstances and nobody cared. Nobody seemed to see. When we feel invisible, God is sometimes the only one who sees us. And it's the encouragement of this passage. Before we, back, we go there, I want to back up and I want to, I want to help us to see how invisible Hagar really felt to the people around her. In verses 1 and 2, we, we, we were looking at those verses and we were caught up talking about the problem that Sarah had. 
and how she was looking for a solution to that problem and whether that was a good decision or not. We were looking at that all from her perspective, but we missed seeing it from Hagar's perspective. Hagar was totally invisible to Sarah. Hagar was just, she was just a solution to someone else's problem. Her, her body was just being discussed and, and decided upon like it was something to fix somebody else's challenges. She felt totally invisible to them. Then when she does all that she's told and becomes pregnant, Abraham says to Sarah, do to her as you please. He doesn't see the pain. He doesn't think about the pain. He just sees this woman as uh, now an intrusion into his marital harmony and his peace and calm. Do to her whatever you, whatever you want. She's invisible to Abraham. And as soon as Sarah gets a thumbs up from Abraham, she makes it her mission to crush this woman, to bring her down and make her feel as miserable as she feels. And again, to Sarah, Hagar is invisible. There's just nothing there. In verse 6, when it says that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar, it interestingly and deliberately uses that that same word that we saw in chapter 15 where God says when the Israelites go into Egypt, they are going to be 400 years and they will be slaves and at the hands of the Egyptians, they will be dealt with harshly. Same word. Not a coincidence. It's, it's, It's going back earlier to what I said about how we read the Bible. If you think that the Bible is commending the behaviors and decisions in this chapter, you're, you're wrong. That's not what's going on here. We're, we're being warned of what's taking place. We're, we're, we're being brought to see that what they're doing will have huge implications. It will, it will not end well. The, the decisions where you cut God out of the picture, it, it doesn't end well. Everybody in Hagar's life has treated her like she's invisible, like she has no value. So how is she going to go back into that environment? How do you turn around from your shortcut and start walking in the other direction when you know how hard that's going to be? It starts with a a greeting on the road back to Egypt. She's catching her breath. She's at that spring on that desert road. And the angel of the Lord greets her in verse 8. He addresses her by name and title, as we saw, and it's Hagar, servant of Sarai. He asks questions. He expresses concern. He shows compassion. He understands exactly what's going on in her life. He promises her a son, and in verse 11, he says, You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction." The word Ishmael just means God hears. God hears. He's heard the cries of your heart when Sarah just wanted to use your body as a solution to her problem. He's heard the the pain in your heart when Abraham just said, I'll do to her whatever you please. 
if if it'll make us it make make us happy, you can. I don't care. I don't see her. God saw her. God saw the cries. He felt the pain. And he says, "Give this son, give this child a name where you will always be able to remember that I'm the one who hears you." I'm the one who enters into that pain that you feel in compassion. She learns that the Lord has listened to her affliction. And as she hears his name repeated, she calls his name, she'll remember she's never invisible to God. He always hears her. He always hears her. When she returns to Sarah and Abraham, she does give birth. She does give birth to a son. And we learn that Abraham calls his name Ishmael. It's important because it's a, it's a reminder, oh, he actually heard the story. He's actually treating this son as his son. She has told him what the angel told her. And so not only is it a reminder to her that God really, God really sees me, he really hears me, it is also a rebuke to Abraham and Sarah. You should have heard. You should have seen. You should have recognized what was happening in this woman. None of this should have ever happened. But I heard them. I heard her pain. And I want you to know that I heard her pain. I want you to recognize that I hear exactly what's going on. That would be important for them to remember that because this time it was an Egyptian slave being treated harshly by an Israelite master. 400 years later, it would be a nation of Israelite slaves being mistreated by Egyptian masters. And they would be crying out in pain, feeling invisible and wondering, does anybody hear? Does anybody care? And they would remember Ishmael. They would remember that God had been a part of that all along, that God had seen all along, that God heard all along, and they would recognize they're not invisible. God hasn't forgotten us. Hagar is the only person in the entire Old Testament God gives, God, that gives God a new name. Like, you've got to be pretty, God, pretty bold to, to, to go up to God and give him a name, right? You've you got you to gotta have something. Uh, it has to be a, a pretty remarkable experience. So in verse 13, it says, She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. The, the name says a lot about God. It also says a lot about Hagar too, doesn't it? it? It says that there are many things about God, but the thing that I most needed was to know that God sees me, that God hears me. And she came to recognize he's seen me all along. He's heard all of my cries. He's felt all of those things. And, it, and in her case, Putting her trust in this God who sees her made all the difference. Uh, William Thomas uh, said, You don't really understand human nature unless you know why a child on a merry-go-round will wave every time, wave at his parents 
every time he goes around, and his parents will always wave back. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, you don't really understand human nature until you understand why every single time around, a child will wave at his or her parents, and they'll always wave back. What he's saying is that deep within us, we have a desire to be noticed. We want someone to see us. And however fun the merry-go-round might be, if someone important in our life doesn't notice it, it just doesn't feel as sweet an experience. That, that is true of the highs in our life. It is also true of the lows in our life, right? When we recognize we have a great joy and celebration, if there's no one there to notice it, no one there who sees us, it just doesn't feel as, as big and important an, an event. But when we are brought down low and we are in pain and affliction, if we don't know that there is a God who notices or sees us, it just feels hopeless. Every time she called his name, every time she called her son, God hears. God sees me. I'm, I'm not invisible to him. He sees everything that's going on in our lives, and he cares. In Psalm 139, David prayed, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Do you know the God who knows you? Have you come to see the God who sees you, sees not just the externals of your life, but sees into your heart, your dreams, your pains, and your sorrows. God knows every decision you contemplate, every thought you entertain. He hears every cry of frustration, and he sees the tears that we try to hold back. He really knows us. Now, God doesn't appear to us every time that we run away, right? He doesn't, he doesn't chase after us in order to prove his love. Just to show that he sees us, it doesn't mean that every time we cut him out of the solution and run back to Egypt, he chases us down and appears to us. That's not primarily the way that he shows that he sees us. The primary way that he shows that he sees us is at the cross, where Jesus, in dying in our place and taking that ultimate making that ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, said, I see the pain that sin has wrought in your life, and I want to rescue you from it. I see the mess that sin has made in disrupting your relationship with a God who loves you. I'll pay the price to solve that problem. He showed that he sees us at the cross, and having shown once and for all for all humanity and providing salvation for, for us, he wants us to know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He continues to see. He continues to hear. The problem is that won't mean much to you if God's opinion doesn't matter to you. If you're going around on that merry-go-round and a stranger is looking back, you don't care. 
Or if you see someone looking back and you think, well, that person's not really all that important to me. I don't really care that they're watching. That's not going to make much difference to you. You might hear this message and say, well, it's great that I'm, I'm not invisible to God, but unless I'm not invisible to that person, I don't really care what, you know, it doesn't really matter to me. For some of you, unless, uh, un- unless you feel visible and unless you see seen by someone, maybe it's in your career or in your marriage or in your home or in your relationships or in your singleness, unless that person sees me, I'm just not going to be the same. And in saying that, we're saying, I don't really care that much about God. I'm not really thinking that much about God. His opinion just doesn't matter that much. The life of faith, faith is to say, I am going to turn from this thing that I have made my God and said, if, if that person doesn't see me, nothing else matters. When I, the moment I do that, I'm saying, that's my God. Whatever I might say about God, whatever church I might attend, whatever faith I might cl- claim to have, that's my God. True faith is saying, I'm going to turn from the false gods of this world and put my faith and trust in the true God, in the one who sees me, in the one who hears me. And and I'm going to choose by faith to say, his opinion matters. His love matters. His hearing me matters. That makes all the difference in my life. Maybe some of you recognize you're on a shortcut this morning. If you do, I want to encourage you to do what Hagar did. To admit that this is a shortcut, it's a path, it's a decision, it's a place where you have cut God out of it. Turn around and by faith in the God who sees you, return. Go to him, look to him, and put him back in the center of your life where He's supposed to be. Let's look to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're the God who sees us because we need to be seen. We need to know that somebody cares, that somebody notices. Thank you for hearing our cries. Thank you for seeing our pain. I pray for anyone here who's on a dangerous shortcut. Would you rescue them? Would you give them the courage to turn around? Give us patience on the path. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Because it's your opinion that really matters. It's your gaze that is most important. So help us to return it and to keep our eyes on you. For we ask you in Jesus' name.